It's our first Sunday of the month. We are going to be in the book of Ecclesiastes again today. And uh, Pastor Solomon is going to show us that things are not always as they seem. And could I ask you to stand out of respect for the reading of God's Word? The Bible says that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of Christ. Let's listen intently together to God's inerrant Word. This is from Ecclesiastes chapter 8. 10 through 17. And then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This is also vanity because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily. The heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked. Neither will he prolong his days like a shadow because he does not fear before God. There is a vanity that takes place on earth that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked. And there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I say that this also is vanity. And I commend joy, for man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful. For this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. When I applied my heart to know wisdom, to see the business that is done on earth, On neither day nor night do one's eyes sleep. Then I saw all the work of God that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much a man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for... uh, We thank you for how it reveals to us your hidden beauty, how it shows us, Lord, that we do not always see clearly, but that you in your ultimate and beautiful wisdom are working out all things to our good, even if we can't see it, even if we can't see everything that happens under the sun, Lord, we know that you are good and we know that we can trust you and we pray, Lord, that your spirit would transform us today through your word, Lord. We pray that you would give us minds to understand and hearts to obey as you beautify your afflicted ones. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. So sometimes we look at things and they seem to be totally obvious self-evident, and then we look at them another way, we see them from another perspective, or we get some new piece of information, we find out that it was actually something completely different, or what we thought was true was actually not, what we thought was one way was actually completely a different way. In the, uh, where we just got finished reading the third book of Harry Potter with our family, Prisoner of Azkaban, in the, uh, one of the... One of, the, one, of the, one of the characters in that book, Sirius Black, played by Gary Oldman in the movies, 
He is portrayed as this evil murderer, this man who has betrayed Harry's parents, handed them over to be killed. But as the story unfolds, sorry if this is a spoiler for you, but it's been out for a while. You really should have read it by now. Um, As the story unfolds, uh, Harry meets Sirius Black face to face, and he discovers this new information that not only exonerates him, but shows that he has been a good and loyal friend to Harry's parents and is even Harry's godfather. And even in the overarching story, of the series, my favorite, personally favorite character, Severus Snape, is portrayed to be this severe, this austere man, this loveless man. But as the story unfolds, we find out uh, and we see things through a different light. We get to the end, we get some new information. We see and we discover that he has been guided by love and has been deeply, has deeply sacrificed himself to save Harry. What we thought was one thing we get some new information, we find out it's something totally different. And the same can be true against God. One of the oldest arguments against the existence of God is that since we know that there's injustice and evil in the world, that must mean that God couldn't exist. How could God, how could a just God allow evil to exist in the world? Another popular argument against God is argument of hypocrisy in the church. People say that because people in the church are fakers, that must mean that God's a faker too, or that God is fake. And Solomon, in this passage, really wrestles with these questions. Isn't it interesting, the Bible itself is the, one, is the, is the source that originally presents these questions. The Bible is not afraid to, to present these difficult and hard questions. And it also gives answers to those questions for those who care to look intently enough to find out. And so Solomon is wrestling with these questions. Solomon is acknowledging the reality of injustice and hypocrisy in the world and in the church. But he also is encouraging us to look a little bit deeper to see if there might be some information that we're missing. There might be some other way to look at this so that what we thought was true, what we thought was so obvious and self-evident, actually isn't. Actually says something else about God. And so the thesis, the big idea, what Solomon is trying to tell us through the word today, is that in a world of injustice, God shows his kindness so that we can trust him to be God. In a world of injustice, God shows his kindness so that we can trust him to be God. And we'll break that down one part at a time. First, in a world of injustice. I'm going to read verse 10, and then I'm going to skip down and read verse 14. Verse 10. Then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This also is vanity. Verse 14. There is a vanity that takes place on earth, that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. And I said that this also is vanity. And so here it is. Solomon rolls out these two related problems here. One of that of hypocrisy, that there are 
are the fact that there's these wicked people that are able to put on this big show of righteousness and show up on Sunday like everything's cool and be praised in life and even honored in death and get away with it. And then the related problem, the related principle, really, is that not only do bad things happen to good people, which is problematic enough, a lot of books written trying to answer that question. Why do bad things happen to good people? Solomon says that, in his experience, is reality. But even worse than that is that good things happen to bad people. Sometimes bad people win. Sometimes the wicked win. Sometimes the wicked win big and win with impunity and win for a long time. And sometimes the good die young. And so how can this not lead us to the obvious conclusion that there either is no God regulating the affairs of life, or if there is a God, that He is unjust, that He is not fair, that He is not good, that He cannot be trusted if He does exist? How does that not lead us to this conclusion? And a lot of people have thought that. It's very, like I said earlier, a very popular argument. I saw an interview, a TV interview a while ago. I think it was with Rick Warren, if I remember correctly. I don't know who the TV interviewer was. I just remembered his smugness. He, he literally, the interview started out like this. He said, Pastor Warren, since we know that there is evil and injustice in the world, that must mean that either God is impotent and powerless to stop it, or he is indifferent and just doesn't care. Which one, in your opinion, is it? And he just stopped, like there was nothing else to say. They might as well turn the lights out, because he had obviously just hopelessly caught Rick Warren in this dilemma. I can't remember what Rick Warren said uh, after that. I'm, I'm sure he gave a decent defense of it. It's a very old argument, and it's not just... Well, what was this? the assumptions, big assumptions he's making, right? Big assumption is that only those two are possible options. If there's injustice in the world, if there's evil in the world, it must mean God either can't stop it or he doesn't care. Only two options on the table. Not even, not, there's, no, there's no thought in his mind of the possibility that maybe there was some purpose to suffering, some purpose to adversity. His big assumption, those are the only two options. This is not just a problem for unbelievers, too. This is a problem in the, for believers, too, right? Solomon is the one who's bringing this up and legitimately wrestling with these problems. Solomon is a believer. Solomon knows Scripture. In fact, Solomon wrote Scripture. He's the guy that wrote Proverbs. And Proverbs is the Word of God that says what? It says that the lives of the righteous, the righteous will live long and prosperous lives but the life of the wicked will be cut short. He wrote that. That's scripture. But he looks at life. He looks at what he experiences, what he's seen, and he's like, but that, that doesn't happen. I see people rolling in and out of church and then, you know, putting on a big show. And then they go out in their everyday lives and they're oppressors and they're victimizers and they, 
they destroy and they're selfish. And they hurt people for selfish gain. And then I see the world praising them for this. Like, and I see the world even honoring them in death. Death, supposed to be the great equalizer. Big funeral. Oh, what an amazing man this was. But everybody knows the truth, right? How can this be? And we see the same thing, right? I mean, we see the whole world shifting to call evil good and good evil. People who hate God are lauded culturally as spiritual and righteous. And more and more, people who love God are categorized as evil and as uh, hateful. And here's the kicker. Here's the kicker. This is anachronistic. I mean, this is a speaking before the time kind of thing. But the kicker for us is that Solomon is basically a Calvinist. If you read him, he believes in providence. He believes in God's sovereignty. He knows. He doesn't have the luxury of saying, well, God is permissive, but this is just permissible will. God is just allowing these things to happen, and he just... He knows, he believes that everything comes from the hand of God. And yet he sees what seems to be God ordaining adversity and evil in the world. How, uh, how do we answer this? How can we still say that God is good, that he is trustworthy? And the answer is just, that we need to have a little bit more information. We need to look at it from a little bit different angle. And so point one is that in a world of injustice, point two, God shows his kindness. God shows his kindness. Look at verses 11 through 13. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. But though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked, neither will he prolong his days like a shadow because he does not fear before God. The first thing this is telling us is that we are making some pretty big assumptions ourselves when we assume that wealth and material gain always mean blessing and that adversity always means curse. That's, our, that's the cultural press coming in or that, that even as Christians, even though we believe in the gospel, that's the cultural consumerist materialist press that is pressing in on us from all around so that we start to take up these cultural beliefs. Money always means blessing. Adversity always means curse. We look at people that are under adversity, we think that's bad. We think look at people that are wealth, that have material wealth, that aren't struggling, we say that's always good. But is that true? What the reality is, the reality is it's not. 
we were, we were at a men's group last night. We had our men's group, our monthly men's group last night. It was amazing for you guys that didn't make it. You need to come next month. Uh, and we were talking about idolatry. It was an introductory uh, to the book we're going to be going through, talking about idolatry uh, and how we make idols of everything. And, and we t- we're talking about the first commandment, about how God, the first commandment is, have no other gods before me. And the question was, why? Why is that the first commandment? And the answer was, the answer was because, it's because God loves us, is the answer to that. Not because he's insecure or whatever, it's because God knows that only he has the power to supply us in life with what we need. That if we worship anything less than God, we will be disappointed and that our lives will be a disaster. And so the, the conversation then shifted to talking about these stories that these men were bringing up about having their idols just ripped out of their bloody hands. One man was talking about having his medical career taken away from him and how God constantly reaffir- was reaffirming to him, am I enough? Am I enough for you? Sanctifying him and building him. Another man talked about having his music career ripped away from him about having his sobriety taken away and having, having adversity, even not just things taken away, but things added to life. One man talked about having his sobriety taken away or this, this debilitating addiction to drugs was added to his life. One man talked about how God gave him a massive brain tumor, gave him cancer, and all of it we were seeing was an act of God's love and mercy and kindness to us because that's what it took to rip the false gods that would disappoint us out of our hands and cause us to rely in the salvation that is only provided through Jesus, to rely on God, to only rely on God. It's heavy when you think, when you see it in that light, that even cancer is God's gift. And when we looked at it from that perspective, we saw that most of our adversity and most of our loss was not the in the impotence of God. It was not uh, God didn't care, is that he did. It was his love and care for us. Second thing this tells us is that God, in his kindness, does not deal with the world in strict justice. He says, because the sentence of evil does the sentence against the evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. In other words, God does not bring strict retributive justice on the world, which means which means strict justice would mean that God would bring immediate and just and fair punishment for every offense. Sounds good, right? Sounds good until you realize that you are included in that category and everybody loves justice until justice comes for you. <laughs> um, 
strict, immediate, and just punishment would include all of our offenses. And so, really, the, the funnest answer to give to people who say there can't be a God because he doesn't deal with evil is to say, well, okay, great, let's start with you. <laughs> and then the tune changes. Or at least we can get a grip of what it is. Why is it that in a fallen world, he doesn't deal with us in strict justice? God is dealing with us in a fallen world by deference or by forbearance, which means that not that justice won't be done, but that it's put off until a later time. God is putting his justice, his strict justice off until a later time. Why? Why would he do that? And the answer is time. Is in time that God... Uh, how many of you would be in serious trouble if God had instituted strict justice five years ago? Or ten years ago? Fifteen? I mean, how far back do we have to go until everybody in this room would be in serious, serious trouble? And so in God's kindness, in his forbearance, in his not bringing strict justice now, he is literally buying time for repentance so that his spirit can work repentance in his people through this end times, what the apostles call the end times is now, this church age. Which means then, of course, that Injustice, hypocrisy in the world, it's not evidence of God's impotence. It's not evidence of God's indifference. But it's evidence of his kindness and his love and his goodness and his benevolence to the world. Yes, people are going to sin and we are going to be affected not only by our own sin but also by sin in the world. And God is aware of all that. And he is allowing evil to run its course under his control uh, and under his power, ultimately for our good and for his glory. Which brings me to the last point. Point one, in a world of injustice. Point two, God shows his kindness. Point three, so that we can trust God to be God. Look at verse uh, 15 through 17. And I commend joy. For man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful. For this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. And when I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, how neither night nor day do one's eyes see sleep Then I saw all the work of God, that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. (laughs) Thought experiment. I want you to all try to imagine, in one sweep, try to imagine the complexity of the total matrix of all cause and effect relationships over the course of history. Ready? Go. Can you do it? Okay, let's make it, let's make it easier. 
thought experiment to try to, rem- try to comprehend in one sweep the complexity of the matrix of cause and effect relationships just in your life, for your lifetime. We still can't do it. I mean, that's the point. That's the point that Solomon is trying to make. He's like, even if, even if we didn't get sleep, even if we didn't sleep, basically, he's saying, even if we never slept, day or night, we toiled to try to find out and understand the complexity of all cause and effect relationships of everything happening in the world uh, so that we might understand perfectly God's justice and His forbearance and all of these things. We can't do it. We don't have minds that are capable of grasping all of that activity. We can't not even close. But God, in His total control of all things, is managing the cause and effect relationships of everything worldwide from beginning to end. He is cognitively aware of all these relationships and He is in His power alone capable of bringing good for us, for his people, and glory to his name through all that. He's able to do that, and we're not. You know, when people look at God and they go, God is unjust because there's injustice in the world. Sam Harris will get up and say, the tsunami killed 100,000 people, therefore God must be unjust. And so you ask me, why was there a tsunami? I don't know. I don't know. Neither me nor you have the cognitive ability to understand the total matrix of cause and effect relationships of everything that happens on the earth throughout time. Can't do it. You want to ask me why God took my sobriety away? I can tell you that. Do you want to ask me why my God took my mother away when I was 15, why I went through despair, why God ripped my music career out of my bloody hands, I can tell you that. I know the answer to that. For my good. For my blessing. So that I would stop relying on those things to bring salvation. So I would stop relying on things that did not have power to be God in my life and caused me to walk in his ways because he's kind I don't know everything but I know that and so you know when we ask he says in his God promises us that he's doing all this that we can't comprehend in such a way as to bring salvation to his people and glory to his name and the question is it's not Is it possible for him to do that? If you believe in God, it's possible for him to do that, right? If you believe Genesis 1-1, it's pretty much downhill from there, right? God is able to do all these things. And so the question's not, can he do it? The question is, can we trust him? Is he telling us the truth that when he promises to manage this complex matrix of events to good, even stuff we can't understand or can't see, the relationships between, how do we know he's telling us the truth? 
Well, the first answer is we know from our, from our own lives, when we really get honest, like we did at the men's group last night, we can look at the most serious problems that life throws at us in our own lives, and we can say, I know that God did that because he loves me and his kindness is on me. And so from our own personal experience, what we can see, we can see that God is good. But over and above that, what we know is we can trust him is in even more convincing a way, even in a more beautiful, bigger way, is that, is that we know that although the, that God deals with the world in forbearance, in other words, God is forbearing on the world, putting off his justment, justice until a future time with the world, that that's not how he's dealing with us. That's not how he's dealing with his church. We are not looking forward to a forbearing judgment. As Christians, as his people, we look back to the event that made forbearance possible. We look back to the event that made deference possible. We look back to the cross. We look back to the crucifixion of Jesus when God poured out all of his justice that we deserve on Christ. All of his wrath on Jesus. So that for us, when we think about justice, we don't think about deference. It's completed. We look back to Jesus who has taken our justice for us. And so for us, because of Jesus, judgment is a thing of the past. Amen? So, knowing all that, can he be trusted? I think so. So, concluding, what does this all mean? How do we respond to this? First is this. Solomon releases you of the responsibility to be God. <laughs> you no longer have to stay up awake at night. We are no longer required, we never have been required, to sit up at night and stress out about every little thing that's happening that we can't figure out the why for. We can release that into the hands of God, knowing that he is trustworthy and that he is faithful. We can relax, and we are free to be creatures in his good providence. And what that means for us, practically, is here Solomon says again for the third time, and he'll say it once more, he calls us to be joyful, to rejoice in the good things that God has given us in this life, to enjoy life. He doesn't mean pretend like nothing bad's happening. He doesn't mean, he's not pressuring us as if if we don't enjoy life, we're sinful and therefore, you know, again, have to stress out about that. He's saying there's a lot of good in the world that he's given us. And in, in this case, in this instance, he says that those good things are joined with our toil. So in other words, when we trust God to be God in life, it means that our blessings, we can enjoy all the good things that he has given us. Wake up in the morning, make your bed, sit on it in that orderly space, and say the Lord's Prayer, and start your day worshiping the beauty of God and his goodness. Have a good breakfast. Drink some orange juice. Make a good cup of coffee. 
and praise God for his goodness and blessing. Go to a graduation party. Have a graduation party or have a party. Go to a birthday party. Enjoy a day with friends. Be cognizant and conscious of all the blessings that God has given us in life. All of his good things. And when adversity comes along, realize that that also is God's blessing for us. That he is trustworthy in working out things to the good, even in the hardships of our life. So we can trust God in life and we can also trust God in death, knowing that in all of these things, we can know that this life is not the ultimate, that we are patiently waiting for our real life to begin, patiently waiting to engage in, to be immersed in, to be brought into the life that Jesus bought for us on the cross when all of the sadness and pain will be a thing of the past and we will be with him forevermore. Amen? Amen. Father, we thank you for the beauty of your word and what it teaches us about you and how beautiful and wonderful and kind you are. Lord, we pray that you would forgive us for every anxious thought, for every doubt, for every time we looked at you sideways and said, I don't trust you anymore. I don't think you're good. Lord, we're all guilty of that. Lord, but the beautiful thing about you, Lord, is that even you know our weaknesses. You know that we're going to be mistrustful. You know that we're going to run from you. You know that we're going to try to grab onto idols and, and literally mess ourselves up. But you, Lord, are faithful. Even when we are not, you have bought and purchased and paid for our salvation in your blood. And even when we run from you, Lord, when you take our idols away from us, when we suffer adversity, it's your kindness and your goodness and your blessing to us, Lord. So we pray that you would help us to know these things and to worship you for them and to love you for them and to move with your will like water and to trust you in all things as you bring us into the fullness of salvation through Jesus. We love you and praise you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.